0: I'm Rex Salisbury, and this is the Cambrian FinTech Podcast. On this show, we talk to the founders, operators, and investors who are shaping the future of financial services. Really excited for today's episode. I'll be interviewing Ahmad Akin, the CEO and founder of Mercury. Mercury was originally founded in 2017 when almost no one had tried to build a neobank for businesses. Today, they have over 100,000 businesses, mostly startups, as customers, and they provide a full suite of banking products from checking and savings to credit cards and expense management to treasury, venture debt, and more. Ahmad, very excited to have you here on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rex. That's a great intro. Very first thing I want to start with is like how you came into fintech in the first place.
1: Yeah, so I've been doing startups since 2006. Yep, my 2006 startup was like a Yelp in London. My 2007 startup was a dev tool, and then in 2008, I started my startup App, which went for eight years. But that was actually four to five different ideas, depending on how you count it. And so it was like a flash gaming distribution thing, then it was a social gaming thing, then it was a mobile social network, then it was an ad network, and then finally it was a mobile mediation platform. Sounds like three different phases of the internet's history right there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And we were always like honestly not picking the right idea and slightly behind the phases probably. I was always an entrepreneur first and then the idea was like second, if you know what I mean. I really enjoy learning new things. I'm never scared about going like, oh, this idea is in a space that I don't get. I'm always like, oh wow, this is cool. Like I get to learn something new kind of thing. The idea for Mercury I had in 2013. So maybe some of it's, I think, obvious, right? Like banks kind of (laughs) suck, right? It's it's annoying to sign up, it's annoying to do basic things. Like, you know, I just couldn't, for ages, I thought maybe there was a law that made it just so you couldn't search for transactions more than 90 days old because every bank does it, right? So there's just all of these like frustrations. And then I came from the UK where generally speaking, banks are better, Mm -hmm. payments are quicker, it's more free, it's easier to use it. I just felt it should be better. And all of these tools had been improving for entrepreneurs. So, back in 2006, it was actually quite painful doing a startup. Like, I remember there was no Stripe. You once used Authorize.net to try to set up like card payments, which was like complete yep. pain. But anyway, my point is, like, I could see every part of like running a business had improved every year. So, it seemed inevitable that would happen in banking. So, in 2017, I was like, okay, you know, there's still a gap for something I would use for my next company. I spent like the first kind of seven months just kind of diving in, figuring out like how to build a neobank. And back then it used to be much more of a mystery.
0: No, it was a total mystery. I mean, in 2013, there were a handful of consumer neobanks. And for them, it was a complete mystery until about 2011. When you had the idea, 2013, complete mystery in terms of how you might do this in a business capacity. And even up until
1: you launched, you're really one of the very first folks to do it for businesses. My whole thinking from the start was I want to make it so this is the only bank account you need for your business. Yep. So that's a relatively high bar for startups, I think, to have like wires, which I don't think anyone had done wires as a fintech before Mercury. Yep. Most consumer neobanks still don't do wires. And I also insisted on having support for immigrants, because you know I moved from the UK, and it was like, yep. a lot of immigrants start companies, I want to be able to support that category. And I don't think anyone had really done that before us. So, But it did make it a lot harder to find a bank, <laughs> get them persuaded, integrate all these features. Yeah, But I think it was the right move for us to kind of insist on that feature set. And so
0: 2017 is generally the first year, and the big question yep. is just, how do you do it? I
1: would say before how it was like. Is it even possible? It was possible? my first yeah. step right? Like, I, especially as like someone who doesn't understand fintech at all, I was. I mean, this is going to sound a little silly, but like, I'd have a phone call with someone in the first month, and they would mention these acronyms, right? They'd be like ACH or B, you know, bin, and I'd be like, What are these people talking about? Because they would assume that everyone knows what these acronyms are. So yeah. I would I would write down like every term or acronym that someone mentioned, and I would go research on the internet where I could. And yeah, I just actually talked to about 90 people, everyone I could get a hold of, like lawyers, fintech entrepreneurs, VCs, etc. Just to go like, how would I go build this? And if you talk to enough people, eventually I came to the level where I was like, okay, now the information is kind of repeated. And I think I know how to do this. How did you find your first
0: banking partner? How long did that take? What did that search process look like?
1: So I went to money 2020 that year. I just raised $6 million from Andreessen Horowitz as the lead and a bunch of other people. And I talked to about 60 banks of Money 2020. Maybe not 60. I think I reached out to 60 and I talked to like 30. Ironically, we didn't do any deal with any of those. Initially, we did a deal with BBVA Open. So back then, BBVA had a fast platform that yep. a few of the simple folks were running. So part of my... Initial research, I ended up talking to a bunch of people that used to work at Simple, and they'd sold their company to BBVA, and they were running this kind of open platform. A great
0: example of how we get to stand on top of other entrepreneurs, because Simple in 2009 found some initial banking partners and then got acquired by BVA. Then some of those people started the actual open BBVA talent. And then, as I think you're about to go into, that was actually disastrous for
1: reasons outside of their control, generally. Yeah, yeah. I think they had a really hard time getting a big bank and working with their compliance team and stuff. So yeah. Unfortunately for us it was a bad move. We ended up doing a lot of work with them, integrated fully. Yep. Even had some customers on them, but they just couldn't support buyers. Like the two things that I insisted on, which they actually promised us that they would support. So that was quite frustrating. And I don't blame the simple folk. I think it was they were just blocked by the bank mostly. They actually ended up shutting that whole program down. So like in hindsight. Pretty glad that we didn't go with that. And yeah, we yeah. ended up going with this other bank called Evolve. That was, I think, at that time, relatively early in kind of doing fintech partnerships, but they ended up doing a bunch since then. And now a big supporter for fintechs as a bank sponsor.
0: Yep. And for you, I think you were one of the first, if not the first, business banking partner through, to evolve through
1: Synapse. Yeah, probably.
0: This is kind of 2018. Now you figured out a little bit of the how, you're figuring out the build. Talk about the launch phase. what did it look like to actually get this product live in market? How did you find your first customers? Who were they? Why did they want to use you versus someone else?
1: There's definitely like this scary phase where like you know it took us a year and a half to build it, and I talked to probably like a hundred startups, and I was like, "Oh, would you use this?" And you know most people were like, "Oh yeah, sure, that sounds interesting." And then a couple of people were like, "Yeah, this sounds amazing. I'll definitely use it so so I was a little worried because I was like, oh, you know, I talked to like 100 people and only two of them seemed to be really into it. And I was like, oh, you know, we're yeah. we wasting our time, here, kind of thing. Almost everyone that was kind of like our alpha beta tester were people that I had invested in. Before starting Mercury, I was kind of testing out whether I'd wanted to be in a VC. By that point, I was doing about 30 to 40 companies a year. So by 2018, maybe I had like 100 companies or so that I'd invested in. And yeah, those were just mm-hmm. like, the correct size company, right? Like mostly seed stage yeah. companies, and obviously I knew them, so that was an easy pool, especially in the alpha beta stage. And then we launched, which it was like April seventeenth, two thousand and nineteen. By this point, this is like, I guess, thirteen years into being an entrepreneur, and you know, I'd probably launch something or another every year for thirteen years. Yeah. Uh, and no- normally, how launches go is like you you kind of hustle really hard, get some tweets, get like a press hit or something like that, and then like. You know, have a little buzz and then it just basically dies out and then you have to figure out like distribution or sales or something like that so that was kind of our expectation what did the team look like to get to this point at that point of launch there was nine people together mm-hmm. four back-end engineers two front-end engineers including me one kind of product and ops which is my co-founder and yep. one designer so there was nine people Two of them literally went on holiday the week after we launched because we just weren't expecting anything and we had no customer service at all. But it turned out to be like just the launch and literally for the next six months was like explosive for us. I don't know quite why it was quite so good. One reason is even though only 2% of people were like, fuck yeah, or whatever, 2% of a very fairly large pool is still a lot, especially like when you have zero, right? Because like a bank can be used by any startup. If 2% of startups are like, oh, this is amazing, and we hit like a good nerve there, that's more than enough to have like pretty explosive kind of launch. I don't know if too many people have pulled off like a Twitter launch strategy, but like, yeah. you know, we had. I guess three biggish investors tweet about us that were like investors. So Andreessen Horowitz tweeted about it. There was obviously seed investor, Elad Gale and Justin Kahn. Mm-hmm. And we had a bunch of investors tweet, but those three were the ones that had like a pretty large reach and their tweets did well. For the first six months, we really didn't do that much distribution. We were just on fire really, like as in, not fire in a good way. I mean, a good way, but also a bad way. Like, we had no customer service people. So it was just like me and my co founder, like talking to people. We had no onboarding people. So we had to manually, like, every single application, especially back then, it was like, we had to literally look at the driver's license, copy the expiry date into our system, make sure it's good, et cetera. Like, we had to do that one by one for every single application. And it was just yeah. basically me and my co founder doing it. It took us like maybe two, three months to go hire the first kind of support and ops people. So, it was a lot of work. But there was I mean there was things just not working, right? Like there was like we thought international wires were supposed to work when we launched, but it turned out they actually didn't work at all. We were sure we tested it, but it turned out like it just didn't work. But yeah, people were like relatively forgiving about these things. I guess like the fact that they were getting emails back from like either me or my co-founder. If you are an early adopter who read a tweet, signed
0: up for a new business bank account, you probably have a higher degree of flexibility like today that would not be a an acceptable experience of course yeah yeah
1: i mean we had someone like literally within three days who saw a tweet signed up and sent a million dollars to their microbank bank account within three days of us, and they didn't even like talk to us i was like wow this person is like kind of insane <laughs> but yeah it worked out <laughs> and so yeah you're growing in 2019 a lot
0: Almost all of the growth is word of mouth. So that's like a very good year, but also a very hard year because you're having to go through scaling pains. Then 2020 is a complete another story, right? 2020 is COVID. Right. You have a revenue drop of 60%, I think, month over month in like March. So again, a completely different year. Would love to hear the story of how COVID impacted
1: the business and what the big focuses were. So 2019, we kind of underinvested because I always expected the growth to kind of slow down. So we always a little behind, like we never had enough support people, ops people, or even we didn't really grow the engineering team that much. Yeah. And then COVID happened, and no one knew what was going to happen, right? Like there was a moment in time, it was like March or April, where everyone was like, "The markets are going to crash," and blah blah blah. The Sequoia Black Swan of twenty twenty memo, which we've kind of forgotten about because then it, the opposite happened. Yeah, I know. I mean, it was so unexpected, right? But then. April happened basically. I mean, it was very quick. The narrative switch like was literally two months where it was like, yep, there's one moment where it was like the world is ending, like startups are not going to get funding, button down the hatches, et cetera. And then next month there was like, oh, actually, this is the biggest boon for the internet there's ever been because like everyone's stuck at home and all they can do is use the internet. For us, the biggest and somewhat surprising thing was that month was like this huge growth in e-commerce. So A, like more signups from e-commerce, but B the spend that these e-commerce companies would, yeah, you know, because like e-commerce literally doubled overnight, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, if you think about it, like if you're a new e-commerce merchant, you need a bank account, it's the middle of COVID, you can't walk into a bank branch to get it. Uh, Mercury was like maybe the only option for you. And this was completely organic, like we had no distribution.
0: And it's worth keeping in mind that most banks at this point in time require in person account yeah. opening
1: for business bank accounts. I mean even today. Even it's, today. It's account. hard to sign up online apart from at Mercury. So we saw a ton of growth in e commerce, literally that month and then it continued growing. And it actually made up for the revenue loss because so, we, you know, we gave debit cards to e-commerce companies, and literally our, our revenue halved and then it doubled the next month, <laughs> which was it was very unexpected. I remember thinking distinctly. I think this is like around May, thinking, okay, you know, we actually have product market fit because, like, for that whole year, we'd grown consistently and fast, but I was always expecting it to like stop. At that point, I was like, okay, you know, even after this kind of black swan event, if we can like continue growing, like it's probably working. And at that point, we, you know, I tried to change my mindset a little bit to try to invest in the future rather than like always being kind of reactive to growth.
0: So then you've got now your kind of startup customers, you've got your e-commerce customers, but the product is still essentially the checking account with the money moving features, ACH wires, international wires. Love to talk through like 2022, (laughs) the the crypto bubble, (laughs) the crypto crash, what that's looked like. And then we'd love to dive into moving into the product roadmap and what it's looked like from moving just from the transactional account
1: into a broader suite of features. So we did launch something in 2020. We worked on that Mercury Treasury product. It's kind of ironic, we started this product in 2019. And that was like our big bet, basically. You know, interest rates were not zero back then. And we were like, okay, you know, what would be great is like if we could give you a, a high-yielding interest rate product, yep. or... If you're really safety conscious, especially in 2019, we talk to companies yeah. that would be like, hey, I've never heard of Evolve. I haven't really heard of Mercury. Why would I put my money here? So that kind of thing. And we wanted to say, oh, you can put it in this US government T Bill fund. So we worked on that and we launched it in 2020. And no one, at least for that product, no one cared at the time. They were yeah. like, okay, yields are like basically zero, like 0.05 or something was the yield. And like we were still a small team and dealing with like a growing base product, like that was the only bet we could have made. So it ended up being a completely pointless product at the time. And
0: by the way, low rates are also hard for you as a business at the time, right? Because
1: float was your primary means of driving revenue. Yeah, yeah, that had disappeared basically, and that had gone away. Yeah, but luckily, debit cards and interchange had grown a lot, so that didn't matter too much. Twenty twenty and. A little bit, but 2021 especially were like extremely fast growth. Yep. on like basically every metric you can imagine: more people starting startups, more e-commerce spend, like insane number of deposits coming in. Almost every month was like a surprise in some ways. And we' still mostly organic at the time, although we'd also kind of started working with incorporators like Stripe Atlas and Firstbase and things like that. So, we kicked off like a little bit of ads and things like that as well. But still, organic was like the yep. kind of bulk of growth. In 2021, we did a bigger round, right? We did our Series B, mm-hmm. which is a $120 million round. So, the vision for Mercury has always been, and why I was interested in Mercury is a bank account is kind of this interesting base, right? For your finances. It's like the first thing you set up. Every single business needs it, it's where your money is. Generally speaking, your whole finance team is logging into it. So it's kind of an interesting starting point to then build other products. So for the pitch in 2021 was like, hey, we started in banking, we're doing really well. We have like some, yeah, at that point, at least in the software startup space, maybe we were like 20-ish percent of the market share in early stage, mm-hmm. which we'd done in like three years, basically. So With the other big folks being SVB and First Republic yeah. and maybe a few other folks. Yeah. I'd say SPB was the only one other one that had like a significant share like us and then it was quite fragmented after us. Mm-hmm. And so the pitch was like, okay, you know, we've built a space and now we're going to go attach credit card and FX and a bunch of other things to have yep. a fuller product and we'll continue growing. And back in 2021, it was like the startups are going to take over the universe and like there's, <laughs> there's no limit yep. to how, yeah. how big this bubble can get kind of thing. Because most of our users are still free. like We had a very good, looking business, right? Like you know economics was mm-hmm. strong, CACs were really low, LTVs were good, even though there was no deposit revenue. And then we kind of made like a little bit of a mistake, I think, in 2021 in that like we raised this round and we felt unstoppable. And we basically like I kicked off like every single idea. <laughs> we were like, okay, we're gonna <laughs> launch on like we're gonna work on venture debt, we're gonna launch work on a credit card, we're gonna do a new bank integration, we're gonna do an AP system. Mm-hmm. All of them basically from zero, we kicked off at the same time.
0: We just raised $120 million. Let's build all of these things.
1: Yeah. I was like, nothing's possible. But uh, what was a hard lesson? We went from a team of like 40 to 200 and we kicked off all the stuff. And basically, nothing really got done. (laughs) Right. Because it's like when you're hiring that many people, it takes a lot to interview them. And then once they come in, you have to like mentor them and they have to get familiar with the code base. So productivity hardly went up.
0: I think that's the hardest transitions for companies, yeah. right? Because at the people layer, going from 40 to 200, you're crossing Dunbar's number of 130 in terms of yeah. relationships and formal knowledge sharing. Often your business is also scaling pretty dramatically during that time.
1: Everyone was like, oh, maybe we can't ship anything anymore because it, like we basically didn't ship anything that year. I mean, there was lots of little things, but like none of these like big initiatives. And then 2022 came along and that's when like most of this stuff ended up shipping. Mm-hmm. Just because like finally people were like caught up with things. So we, we launched FX in January, VentureDebt in March, our credit card in September, and then our first kind of bill pay solution around October. We did a few other things. Yeah, everyone was like, Wow, this company's shipping like crazy. I was like, Well, you know, that's like just a consequence <laughs> of like us not shipping anything <laughs> in twenty twenty-one. Obviously, the market kind of got worse and worse twenty twenty-two. It kind of started in like November twenty twenty one. I think like May in 2022 was like the lowest point. I mean, maybe not the lowest in terms of like growth, but like the lowest in terms of like, that's when they like flatlined, like crypto collapsed because of like FTX and blah, blah, blah. And yep. obviously it's summer anyway, so like VCs aren't funding anything.
0: I mean, if you look at a venture funding chart, you can see it peaks in 2022. Well, second half of 2021 to like maybe first quarter of 2022, then that falls off a cliff. And so in May, you look at your numbers, you look at the amount of accounts that are getting up, you're like, oh, this is a different picture than it was just three months ago. New
1: account openings has always been fairly consistent. Like, yeah. It's kind of interesting, like people form startups through like almost yeah. every period, which is which is surprising. I was like, hey, you know, if I have a nice job, like would I quit it right now in this funding environment? I think
0: people think entrepreneurs are often starting things because And I think they are because they're super fired up to start something. But oftentimes they're also doing it because like, this is the best option for me to do something right now versus the other option. So hard markets like A, will actually encourage some people to be like, look, I don't want to join another company. And the pre-seed and seed part of the market has actually been quite resilient, right? There are lots of funders still active. And those are your new customers. To your point, so you can still have stability of new account openings, even if you're seeing you know fluctuations in later stages.
1: Later stage has been like really brutalized, but yeah, there's like reasonable arguments to say like at seed stage you're really betting for like ten years from now, so you know the current economy shouldn't really yeah. matter that much. There's definitely been a decrease in both amount of funding and valuations and stuff like that. But I think number of rounds yeah. seems like really. Fairly resilient, at least we make a lot more money now that interest rates are back. So we became profitable pretty much around kind of summer last year.
0: I'm glad we kind of walked through the story of how Mercury has been building from basically a single product with a single customer archetype to now multi-product with several customer archetypes, although still largely concentrated in you know Silicon Valley-based startups. But that's one of the really hard things about building a bank is you need to build a franchise that has diversification of customers, diversification of products and it's hard to get there
1: because you have to build them sequentially. Also like financial products are like really hard. I remember with software like you can just go like oh I have this idea and then you build it like it can be quite big but like, in 3 months you can launch it. And- with most financial products, there's the software piece, there's this whole risk and controls piece, and then there's yeah. some backend financial provider that's like powering the software piece, which is often, it's like at least three times harder to build an idea in finance. So each of these products, it's really not like an easy thing to like quickly do. I also have a lot of software ideas. At least in the first phase, it made more sense to build the financial services on top of the Bank account rather than kind of the software side of it. I'm hoping in the next kind of year or two, we end up building a lot more like on the software side.
0: Yeah, I would love to talk about what it was like to launch the credit card program because you already have your banking partner, but your well, credit cards is a bit of infrastructure that is not nearly as developed, certainly not for businesses. And so, what did it look like to build that and then also integrate it with your existing stack? It
1: wasn't too bad. But there was a few things that made it a little easier, right? Like interface-wise, we had a lot of the pieces. Like we already had debit cards, we already had virtual cards, we already had like a concept of like a card-only account, so you could invite an employee and they could have a card and not see the rest of the bank. The hardest thing was probably integrating with all these third parties, right? So we had a new yeah. card processor, this company called Lithic, and a new card printer. Card printers generally are very annoying to work with. When you worked with BBB
0: OpenA, you were working with kind of the legacy team behind Simple, one of the first neobanks. With Lithic, they had a direct consumer credit card program. They spun into a B2B issuing platform. And so now, you know, you're years later getting to build and rely on some of the infrastructure
1: other folks have. But it was like timing-wise works out. I think that was most of the work, just like all of these integrations. The actual front-end user-facing features, there was definitely like a bunch, but it wasn't like too crazy. I think a lot of them we had, and then it was things like, okay, you know, how do we underwrite these customers? What are the rules making that engine, making the sign up flow? Yeah. A lot of it actually in cards, you end up spending a ton of time and like the design iteration of like what does the card look like is like quite slow. Like it takes forever to do it. And then you have to get approval from MasterCard. So
0: 2021, you've got the bubble generally, a bunch of acceleration. You're starting to ship a bunch of product. 2022, you have to crash. 2023, you have the collapse of svb right the yeah. biggest incumbent with the highest market share for your largest customer segment you talked about how you saw 2 billion dollars of deposits in just a few weeks in flowing into the platform so would love to talk about what 2023 has looked like for you guys so far
1: i did a tweet in january saying like oh hopefully this will be a relaxing year and january and february were like relatively relaxing and then svb's like collapse started happening and it was a scary moment from like a couple of levels like number one are a bunch of banks gonna fail like this could have been like a bigger systemic thing and that was one worry and then the second worry was like is there going to be a massive kind of flight to quality and everyone's going to go to like jpmc or something like that yeah and we had this conversation among our kind of exec team where we were like okay I kept talking to people, and they'd be like, "Hey, you know, if SVB is like going down, like what about Mercury? Like, why is it safe?" And I'd say to people, "Hey, we're profitable. Our banks are profitable. But if you're still worried, we have one million in FTIC insurance, which is what we had at the time. Mm-hmm. And you can sign up to like Mercury Treasury and get U.S. government T-bills via Vanguard. And you know, between those yep. two, you can feel like a relative amount of like safety." my co-founder was like, why don't we just build a product that like combines these concepts into an actual product? So it's not us having to explain it, but you can just go to it and just see, okay, where's my money? How much FTSC insurance do you have Like am I in Mercury Treasury with the right fund? Yep. So that was the idea, and we call, ended up calling it Mercury Vault, and we basically built it over the weekend.
0: Thursday is like the big day when everyone's really starting to move stuff. Friday, yeah, yeah. the banks
1: basically shut down, and then you build yeah. Vault. We started Saturday 11 a.m. and we shipped it like Monday 9 a.m. or something like that. We also had to like work with our partner bank and they extended the FDIC insurance from like 1 million to 3 million. And then we got it to 5 million a week later. You never know whether these things will be useful or not, but it really changed the narrative from Mercury being like this like ooh, kind of scary startup option to being like the safe bet. It was vault, but it was also just...
0: You could do fully digital onboarding in a matter of minutes and even digital onboarding at most other banks would take. And so you put these two things together and all of a
1: sudden it becomes incredibly material. I guess it's been like eight weeks since then. And the bit that I'm excited about is now we're kind of the incumbent now, I guess. (laughs) It's kind of a weird thing to think about like after four years. Don't stop a shipping product and start (laughs) just stagnating. No, no, no. We're not going to do that. That's my like greatest fear. I don't think we're the incumbent isn't like we're successful, but I think at this stage there isn't really another alternative bank for startups that has like a reasonable yeah. market share.
0: I'd love to talk about post-2023, 2024, and beyond. What does the future of Mercury look like? Because there's one way you can go, which we've already talked about, building a lot more software for your existing customer archetypes, startups, e-commerce companies, or broaden the scope of who you see as inside of your market. And it's like, now we want to be the bank for maybe all companies and we want to really start to take on and challenge someone like a J.P. Morton.
1: I mean, the aim has always been a fairly broad aim. This was literally my first first pitch. It was always like, (laughs) hey, banks nowadays mostly deal with bets, but still the same old banks. And it's obvious to me that technology companies are going to dominate banking from a customer perspective, Mm -hmm. at least. And then the other side is businesses are more and more tech-enabled and it's obvious that they're going to demand better banking products. Yeah, So that's always been kind of a fairly broad pitch. It's still, in my opinion, like important to be focused and not go like, we'll try to do everything for everyone. So this year we really set out to go like, let's be focused on startups and e-commerce. On the e-commerce side, for example, we haven't actually built that much stuff. Like mm-hmm. It's actually 30% of our customers, but there's a ton we could build. So now we have a team dedicated to building stuff there. The biggest aim this year for us was to get better at serving bigger companies. So yeah, we have companies that scale while they're on Mercury, but it was just a combination of obvious missing stuff and like cool stuff we could build for them. So we're just in beta testing on NetSuite integration, which I think is obvious. But it wasn't something we had until like literally last week we started beta testing it. But yeah, there's a bunch of features that like bigger companies need that smaller companies don't. And we haven't built them out. So so that's a big thing. Like get really good at bigger companies, get better at serving e-commerce companies. And between those two, I think we'll be in a pretty good position next year to not just expand to bigger companies that are already using Mercury, but go sell directly to bigger companies to get them to move over to Mercury. And then on the e-commerce side, I think there's tons of expansion we could do there. Yeah, That's how we think about it. We don't generally go like, oh, this is a new category. We have no footprint in it. Let's go launch there. Like One of the things that came after SVB was we saw a lot of VCs moving over to us. It was always about 5% of our customers. We were like, okay, what can we build for this feature set? So we launched some marketing, which was mostly just marketing our features that we already had. And then right now we're building this feature. So lots of VC funds have multiple funds and multiple entities. And it's kind Mm -hmm. of annoying right now. You have to create a separate account and it's a separate email address for each one. So the idea will be you can have one email and like 10 accounts that like you can flip between, which is probably the biggest feature request we've had from funds. So yeah, that's kind of how we think about our expansion. And one other
0: question I want to talk on because something that also has changed a lot in the past couple of months is the introduction of AI and AI in financial services, I think, has some interesting opportunities to automate a lot of workflows. And so I'm curious if you guys have done any hackathons internally at Mercury and have started
1: to see any fruits from those hackathons, or if it's still too early. We did a hackathon recently on it. Mostly ended up with like internal use cases, like analyzing data, helping the ops team, some stuff around customer service. I think for user-facing stuff, I'm a little not skeptical but i want to be clear i think the
0: most interesting use cases i expect to see are the internal ops facing ones which yeah. are
1: pretty material right yeah it's interesting i think fintech is one of those places that maybe i'm going to chew these words later on but it feels like one of the places that's like least disrupted by ai i think because at least for the current state of ai like precision is not guaranteed whereas in fintech mm-hmm. precision is like a requirement like you can't be misinterpreted some of the time we have a pretty rich search interface and you could imagine having like an NLP interface for the search interface but like i just feel like it'll get frustrating when you're like hey show me all the transactions from starbucks last month and then it like shows you like i don't know astronomy something or another like you know it just you yeah. can't be misinterpreted very much So, there's maybe some stuff around search and there's some stuff around analytics that's like maybe interesting where you can like use natural language and like stuff like that. But it's not as disruptive as like I think other fields could have. Uh, Like, even workflow stuff, again, you can't make mistakes. These fields are quite complicated. When you're sending an international wire, there's a bunch of stuff. So, we do like, for example, do OCR on PDFs already, but like OCR technology is like fairly existent. It does feel like the biggest wins are going to be in operational efficiencies and improvements there.
0: Yep, no, totally. And then last thing I always like to ask entrepreneurs is what advice you have for prospective fintech entrepreneurs if they're thinking about starting something. And related to that, especially given how into the weeds you've gotten in building various different products and financial services, if there are certain opportunity
1: areas you would love for entrepreneurs to explore. I think 2021 was actually kind of a bad time to do fintech. There was too much funding. Every idea was getting funded. There was too much competition for anything that got done. I think now is the exact opposite. Fintech is kind of like in the doldrums. And I think it's a great time to start a company.
0: So number one bit of advice, start a company.
1: I think it's a good time to do it. I think lending is pretty much impossible. I think lending was always hard to do for fintechs, but that's like the one space that's hard. But infrastructure, neobank, payments, I think that all of those are still interesting and will continue to be interesting. If you can pull off like a vertical neobank of some sort, I mean, obviously, yeah. we're doing a certain type, but. The maths pretty good for neo banking like as long as you can get your CAC low enough and really actually like getting CAC low enough is all about like making a product that people love enough to share with people so if you can do that i think neo banking between interchange and deposit revenue is a pretty interesting field still i still think there's more winners to be had there i saw your tweet that said like there's basically no funding in your bank and i think that is true but if you look at like most other fintech verticals I still feel like neobanking is the least explored, actually. It's both the most
0: explored because it's going after very underserved customers, which is great. That's a needed product. It's also, at least at one point in time, was more greenfield. The banks didn't want to serve it, so there's this greenfield opportunity. But no one has figured out how to build a neobank to go after the middle class or the mass affluent, which is how the incumbent banks make all of their money. Yeah. And as someone who just wants to see people really challenge the status quo, I want to see someone launch a multi-product neobank with an interesting distribution strategy that will fundamentally challenge the Bank of America's, the JP Morgan's, because it's a better product and it's going after their core customer. But it's just hard. Like After the SVB debacle... Bank of America shared slides on their deposit franchise showing we have 10 year relationships with most of our customers, we have two plus products, and we pay them 0.05% interest. And so she's like, it's it's so hard to get these people off of these large banks. But it seems crazy that middle class mass affluent consumers are still going to be banking on these banks in 10 years. I hope people do find some interesting angles there, but it's hard. Yeah. Well, awesome, Ahmad. This has been a really great conversation. I enjoyed. It. I think you know, you proved that you could build a business bank, which was really, really hard and non obvious at the time and had to go through these successive iterations to actually get there. So maybe maybe someone listening today will be doing that for a, a consumer neo bank.
1: Maybe in the
0: future. So awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It's been really great having you. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Rex. This was fun. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ahmad. I love how we're able to cover just how different every year in this company's history has been and yet how they've come through every year seemingly stronger through a lot of hard work, but also probably a little bit of luck. You need both to be successful in startups and in fintech. If you like this conversation, feel free to hit like and subscribe. Thanks, and we'll catch you next time.